Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guest. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to set up a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also, visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com, or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. There's a song that the title of it, I love. The title is, The Longer I Serve Him, The Sweeter He Grows. I love that title of a song. And that's true in so many ways of those of us who are Christians. That the longer we serve Christ, the longer we serve God, the longer we study Scripture... The sweeter so many things about God, about His will and His way become to us. And we see that in part through simply, as, as best we can, an, an, an understanding of the wisdom of God. We, we can't fully understand everything. We, we get that. But the longer we serve, the longer we study, the longer we live this life, the more we get glimpses of the wisdom of God and why He would ask us to do certain things, why He would command us to do certain things, why He would command us to stay away from certain things. And one of those is found in the organization of the church. We may never fully grasp everything about the organization of the church, but we love the church. We also understand it's His church. And the longer we live and serve and study, the more we understand, at least in part, the wisdom behind why God would command that His church do certain things, and specifically this morning, why it would be organized in certain ways. But we need to love the church. Just by means of introduction, let me give you a few reasons. We won't spend a long time on any of these, but we need to love the church because God is glorified in part through the church. As Paul came to the end of the first half of the book of Ephesians, he just bursts forth in praise. And he says, he talks about the one who is able to do far more, exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And then he said, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. One of the ways we glorify God is through the church. Do we really see it that way? We need to love the church because it is the body of Christ. The church, excuse me, Christ is the head of the church, which makes the the church the body. Again, Paul would write the words in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Speaking of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things... And in him all things consist, hold together. And he, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. If Christ is the head of the church, we need to love the church because it's connected to that head. We need to love the church because it's comprised of people from all, all walks of life. Every tongue, tribe, people, nation, the book of Revelation would call it. We might just say from everywhere all the time. You have brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world. Isn't that a beautiful thing? 
Some look very much like you, speak a lot like you, have cultural things just like you, and some, frankly, couldn't be much more different than we are. We just got back, my family did, from Freed Harbor this last week, went to the lectures there, and I was reminded, this sermon was on my mind, but I was reminded of this when one of the mornings, I want to say it was Tuesday morning, but weeks like this, all the days start to run together after a while, when I heard a familiar voice that sounds nothing like anybody in this room, I guarantee you, because it said, Bhagavadam! Ronnie Goodham from India. His brother, Ricky, was in college with me, and my dad has actually sat in his living room in India. He couldn't, they couldn't look any different than you or I look. They couldn't talk any different than you or I talk. Culturally, they couldn't be much different. But they're my brothers. We got a New Year's card from Ricky. We love Ricky. He may be coming to our house in May. I hope so. I love that. And we love the church because even though we're different culturally and speech-wise, we're united in Christ. We love the church also because the church is what will be in heaven together forever. Isn't that wonderful? That no matter how different we might be around the world, culturally or speaking-wise, you know, tongues and languages and things, that when we're in heaven, that's, that's who's going to be there. It's the church. By the way, if we don't love the church here, why would you ever want to go to heaven? Because that's who you're going to be with forever. Is with the church. And there are a lot of other reasons. But just by means of introduction. I want us to build upon that love for the church. But we need to love the head of the church. Who is Christ. And be reminded of the fact that he told us in John 14.15. As well as 15.14. If you love me keep my commandments. Or if you love me you will keep my commandments. And one way we see that is in the organization of the church. I want to take this morning's sermon. To think about one specific aspect of that. We're calling our lesson this morning, what exactly do deacons do? Because, as you know, unless you're a guest here, we are in the midst of the process of searching for deacons. Names have been turned in, I presume, and the elders are praying about those those men and considering those things. And I don't know the timeline, but at some point in the future, they will uh, share with us those names and we'll consider them further and so on and so forth. But as we go through this process, we need to make certain of, of what we're actually doing. Who are these people? Who are these men? What what are they? What exactly do they do? And to help us think about that this morning, I want to do three things. First of all, I want us to consider the organization of the church in general. Not not at a deep level, because we don't have time to study at a deep level, but it doesn't take a long time to study it, thankfully. But I want us just to consider that. And then I want us to consider within that organization of church, these men who are deacons. What do they not do? And then in the third place, what do they actually do? So consider with me, first of all, God's wisdom as it's seen in the organization of the church. As I said from the outset, the longer we serve Christ, the more we love Him, the more impressed we are with His plan in so many ways. And one of those ways is His wisdom in organizing the church. We understand that God has laid out a plan, but we also see that we need to make sure that we follow that plan. Somebody said, a lesson like this just doesn't matter. I mean, you're just making a mountain out of a molehill. Well, I disagree with that for at least a couple of reasons. One is because God has revealed to us what he wants. And if God has revealed to us what he wants and what he desires and what he commands, it becomes something worth fighting for and defending and making sure we are doing. But also, when we begin to say, well, I know what God's word says, but I think I have a better plan. We're speaking in total arrogance because we're beginning to claim that our wisdom is higher than God's wisdom. And God's plan for the church is beautiful. If you think about it, there's really only a couple parts to it. 
First of all, earthly speaking, there is no superstructure. In other words, there's nothing above the local congregation. Each congregation, we often say, is autonomous. There, there is no synod or convention or commission or anything else on this earth, headquarters, that we answer to as a local congregation. Some couple of years ago or so, our family was in Cleveland, Tennessee. Uh, Lee and I were speaking there on a, uh, a parenting seminar, I believe. And on the drive from the hotel to the church building that we were going to be at for that weekend, we drove by the, the world headquarters of a particular denomination. And I was kind of thankful that at that corner that we were stopped at, that there was a stoplight. Because we had, usually I'm not well thankful for that, John. I hate, unless they're green. If they're green, I love them. But it was red. And I was kind of thankful for that because it gave me a moment just to let that sign sink in. The world headquarters of, that name the particular denomination. And it made me thankful that nowhere on this earth do you see a sign that says world headquarters of the church of Christ. You can't drive to that building. There is nothing above the local congregation on this earth. Now, congregations may work together on certain things. For example, next Sunday morning, Lord willing, Brother Barton Kaiser will be here to report on the work that, that we support in Cusco, Peru and have for many years. And we're grateful for that work. And, and I understand that sometime in the afternoon, he'll be at the Hamilton Church of Christ giving probably the same report, at least a very similar one, because they also support that work. They found that work worthy of support. But we don't send our money to some mission board that then supports that work in Peru. We support the work, and the Hamilton Church supports that work, and many other congregations do as well. We don't answer to them, and they don't answer to us. Our elders decide, what is it for us? You see, nowhere in Scripture of anything other than a local congregation making decisions for itself under the lordship of Christ Jesus. But then within that local congregation... There is an organizational structure. You see it laid out very simply in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. Where Paul gives that description for us. He began that letter with these words. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. That's it. That's the whole organization of church. You have saints or Christians. You have overseers elsewhere called elders or pastors or shepherds or bishops. And you have deacons or servants. That's it. That's what, wait a minute. Where are the preachers? Be quiet and sit down, right? They're on that list. They're saints. They're Christians. While there is a certain leadership aspect to preachers, if you don't believe me, read First and Second Timothy and Titus, they are simply Christians who serve under the oversight of the elders in a specific capacity. But that's the entire organizational structure of the church. It's elders or overseers, deacons or servants, and the saints are Christians. That's it. And isn't that beautiful? There are people in this room who work in the corporate world or other organizations that may have you know, an org chart, maybe in a, a folder or on the wall or on a spreadsheet somewhere, and you're going, that's the easiest org chart I have ever seen. And doesn't that show us God's wisdom? Because you think about the fact that this is the wisdom of God. This plan is the wisdom of God because it's not ruled by chaos. In other words, there is organization to it. It's not just we all decide what we want to do all the time. There's no rule. No, there is a structure to it. God is not the author of confusion, 1 Corinthians 14 tells us. And we see that here. But it's also God's wisdom because it's not one person rule. You don't have the elder or the pastor or whatever. You have elders, plural, 
who lead. That's helpful because God understands that if it was one person rule, there were a couple of extremes that could happen. One extreme, of course, could become a dictator. I get my way no matter what because I'm in charge. Or the other extreme is I can't bear the responsibility alone. I've heard elders many times say they're thankful for their fellow elders because of the weight of looking after the souls of this many people is a heavy responsibility. Can you imagine doing that alone? I can't imagine the weight of that. It's hard to imagine even in a group of elders, but can you imagine that alone? That's what's not one person rule. It's also God's wisdom because it's simple. As I said a moment ago, it's the simplest organization or chart you'll ever see. But everyone knows where they fit, what they do. And then it's wise because everyone can do their part. Everyone knows where they fit within a simple structure such as that. Now, there's a lot more to say, but I wanted just to lay that foundation down for us that we're talking about something that's within the wisdom of God, not just something where God has laid something down arbitrarily, although he could if he wanted to, but it's wise. And it's, it's important for us to make certain that we do our best to organize ourselves under his leadership with this structure. But within that structure are these men called deacons. And since we're in the process of, of seeking additional deacons, let's think about two things concerning them. First of all, let's think about what deacons must not do. And there are a lot of things we could list, of course, but I want you to turn back to the scripture reading in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Because I'm going to reference a couple of things that are found in these qualifications of deacons that will help these men not do these things. First of all, deacons must not usurp or undermine the leadership of the elders. Now, this may seem obvious, but it needs to be said. Deacons are not elders. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But they can very easily at times, undermine the leadership or the influence if they're not careful. And if they're not careful even beyond that, they could even usurp, go above the authority of the elders. But consider the fact that even some of the qualifications of these men would make certain this does not happen. For example, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 8 states that deacons must be dignified. The word carries the idea of being honest or honorable. You know, deacons in our modern day often look after programs or ministries, even sometimes that have funds attached to them, but certainly they have people attached to them. And so they need to be men who have an honesty about them, an honorableness about them, or to use the word we're using, a dignity about them as they do that. So they have the full assurance, the elders. But also notice in verse 8 that they are to avoid being double-tongued. It's a really strange word. It's not one I've used very often, double-tongued. It's an interesting translation. Because the original word literally means two words. That's what it means. It means two words. And you know what that means, don't you? These are the kind of men who will not tell one story over here and then tell a different story over there. Or more literally, one word over here and another word over there. Can you see how if, if a deacon were double-tongued, a man of two words, that he could undermine the authority of the elders? How he could tell the elders what they want to hear when he's talking with them, but then go over here and tell a completely different story about whatever's going on and undermine their authority. Elders set the tone for a congregation, but deacons can easily cut that influence and that tone down if they're not doing and saying what they should. And there are other qualifications you could find as well in this passage that would would help a man not undermine or usurp the authority. 
But I also suggest to you in the second place that elders must not see themselves as, and I'm using this in quotation marks, junior elders. I've heard a lot of Christians over the years say similar thoughts to this. You know, let's make him a deacon. And then when he proves himself there, we'll make him an elder. Now, it is certainly true that a great number of elders previously were deacons. That, that certainly happens. That's a very natural thing. And we understand. I'm trying to say that a man, you know, that we shouldn't think of it in a certain way. But if you ever consider the fact, are you, are you still in First Timothy 3? Have you ever considered the fact that one of the qualifications, not for elders, but for deacons, is that there's a proving ground? Look again in your scripture reading at verse 10. Well, we're told, and let them, speaking of the deacons, also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Now, do elders need to be proven? Yes. I'm not saying that at all. That's clear in their qualifications. It's not a novice, not a new Christian, so on and so forth. But deacons must not see themselves as becoming a deacon so that it's a stepping stone to the eldership. Because these are already men, hopefully, for being scriptural, who have proven themselves in certain ways. We've seen them lead. We've seen them serve. We've seen them help. We know what kind of men they are. And so we appoint them as deacons so they can simply do more of that in a more organized way under the oversight of the elders and help us as a congregation in a more efficient and helpful way. But deacons, this is not a stepping stone to the eldership. Your work is valuable. And we need to make certain as a congregation that we don't see this as, as some half step to the eldership. I've known men all my life, virtually, who were deacons who had no desire to become elders one day. And, of course, the first qualification of an elder is a man desires the office. But they wanted to be deacons. One of the most faithful deacons I ever knew was not appointed to be a deacon until he was 70 years of age. was a wonderful, wonderful servant. And how wonderful an example that is that he wanted to serve those older years of his life in that role and did so fabulously. But they're not junior elders. I would also suggest to you that deacons must not see themselves as unimportant. Folks, if deacons were unimportant, God wouldn't have put them in the organization of the church. Their role is vital. It helps with efficiency. It helps with, with vibrancy. It helps with so many ways. And considering that the word deacon simply means servant or special servant, sometimes their, their acts of service, or at least their individual works of service, may not be something that we see in the limelight. It may be something that's very much behind the scenes. It's something that doesn't get recognized like something else does. But men who serve as deacons and those who are being considered or will consider in the future, please forgive us if we don't honor you like we should. Because your role is important. Everything you do in the service of Christ he sees, he knows, he cares, and he will reward. Your role is, is invaluable because God put it there. But I also suggest to you that deacons must not fall out of being qualified. We often, when we're looking for deacons such as we are right now, and we did this a few weeks ago, and you may have noticed on the back page of the newsletter, now, three or four weeks ago, we, we put the qualifications of deacons there from an expanded translation so you could read through it and think about it and think about the men you might want to write their names down and so on and so forth. 
But I don't know about you. Sometimes I never think about those qualifications once a man becomes a deacon. We kind of we kind of treat it as a way to get into the club instead of what they are to be constantly. And I want you to notice as you look at First Timothy three, I want you to notice how Paul wrote those qualifications. For example, if you look at verse eight, deacons must be present tense. Verse nine, they must hold present tense. Even the wives, verse 11, must be present tense. Verse 12, the deacon let him be present tense. We can talk all we want about these qualifications for a man to become a deacon, but the emphasis is on he must stay in those qualifications to remain qualified for this very special and important role. It's not just to to get into the club, so to speak. It is to remain that special servant under the oversight of the elders, under the headship of Christ, seeking to serve a local congregation. So with those knots in mind, I want you to turn to one other passage this morning. And we're going to think about what deacons actually do. Turn to Acts chapter 6. We're going to read this passage together in just a moment because we didn't read it for our scripture reading. But let's think about the opposite. What do deacons actually do? Acts chapter 6, we're going to read the first seven verses. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that is the Greek-speaking Jews, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Verse 2, And and the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among among you seven men full of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Verse 5, And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, I know that the word deacon is not found anywhere in Acts 6, 1 through 7. But considering this is very early on, and if you please, the history of the church, and considering the apostles are still leading the church, and considering that all the Christians are still in the city of Jerusalem, that will not change to the opening verses of Acts chapter 8. These men serve as the first type of deacons for this local massive congregation there in Jerusalem. What are some things we see about these men that become the example, if you will, the type for what deacons are to be? I would suggest to you three things. First of all, deacons take care of those in need. More specifically, if you want to expand that to make it more correct, will be deacons take care of those in need connected with that local congregation. That was just kind of long for a PowerPoint. That's that's the idea. Did you notice what, what sets up this whole chapter? This whole episode, Acts chapter 6 and verse 1, there was this problem about Greek-speaking widows. And it seems as if that early church had some kind of program or ministry where they were making a distribution, presumably of food, to the widows of the congregation. But for some reason, the widows who were Greek-speaking were being left out. Either no one was taking it to them or no, no funds were being given. Whatever the problem is, they were being left out from being given this daily distribution. 
Obviously, that's a problem. Because you have something can be very divisive in that early church. The apostles in their wisdom do not say, okay, we'll do that too. No. They said, we see a need for this particular congregation that must be addressed. Let's make the, let's have these men take care of that issue. Folks, that's still what deacons do in 2018. Tie this back to how we began the lesson. You may have thought this, all this about church organization was just to fill in a few moments. That's why I said this PowerPoint, I should put more words on there, but with a lot of words. Deacons in 2018 still take care of needs connected with that local congregation. Aren't you thankful that nowhere in the New Testament does it say for a church to be scripturally organized, it must have a deacon of Greek speaking widows? Well, wouldn't that be important for us in Haleyville, Alabama in 2018? Instead, God makes certain that we have the organizational structure, but then says, basically, what the congregation needs, deacons are to serve. So, we, for example, have a deacon who works with our building and grounds. Guess what the Jerusalem church in Acts chapter 6 did not need? They didn't need deacons or building and grounds. Why? They didn't have one. (laughs) They didn't have a building. Okay, But we have that particular need that needs to be met. A congregation needs to look at itself and say, what are the needs that need leadership, servantship to handle? Now let's find the men to meet the need. That's the role of deacons. They meet those needs of a particular congregation. But also see in this passage that deacons allow other leaders to fulfill their roles. As I said, did you notice the apostles did not say, okay, we'll take care of this one too. No, the apostles were very wise. And the apostles knew what their role was. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 2, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to save tables. And then down in verse 4, they said that their role was the prayer, uh, was prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, were they saying that this need was unimportant? Not at all. Not at all. But what they were saying was we have a role to play and we need someone else to play this other role. So let's make certain that need gets met in that way. They told the congregation to find seven good men and put them on that task. This is just speculation on my part, so just take it for what it's worth, which is probably nothing. But I find it somewhat interesting that nowhere in Acts chapter 6 do you have the apostles calling these seven seven men in And listing every single way to get the job done. You ever notice that? You seek out seven. We'll appoint them. Now I'm certain they told them what the job was. (laughs) You understand the issue here. Listen carefully. If a man is qualified to be a deacon. He is qualified to be a deacon. Let him work. Give, Give him the work. And elders make certain that there is a focus And yes, take the time at times to communicate and take the time to encourage and and sometimes maybe take the time to correct. But if he is qualified to serve, he is qualified to serve and do it. It's the beauty of God's design because that frees up in the modern church, the elders to shepherd, to oversee, to look after souls while the deacons serve. It's beautiful. 
when you place it all together. And then I want you to see that what deacons do is they bring honor to God's work. Don't you love how this passage of Scripture ends? I mean, verse 1, you've got a problem. You've got the church that could have been very divided over this issue of certain widows being helped and certain widows not being helped. You've got this issue that basically, if I may use the word, you have some racial tension here. Because you have certain people being left out just because they spoke a different language or, or had different cultural differences. That's what's going on. Okay, We're not the first culture to deal with these kind of things. All right, The early church dealt with these kind of things. And this could have been a massive problem. The apostles and their wisdom said, here's the solution. And what's the conclusion? It's beautiful. In Acts 6, 7, the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And the apostles and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I'm asking this question in a flippant way. But isn't it amazing what happens when we just do things God's way? <laughs> it's remarkable. Because in Acts 6.1, you've got a problem that could have divided the early church and blown this whole thing up. Six verses later, you've got priests being converted. Because people just did things God's way. Now, I'm not saying everything just gets smoothed over all the time. And, you know, six verses, quote unquote. Just a few moments because we make one decision that's right. But it's remarkable what happens when we simply do things God's way. It is simple, it is organized, it's important, and it is effective. If we will simply do what God would have us to do. Now, I said a few minutes ago, there are some who would think that a lesson like this one is just making a mountain out of a molehill. It's just taking some passage of Scripture and saying, okay, let's, let's make more rules. Let's make more stuff and just find something. Folks, this is not my church. This is God's. And if he says it, we need to respect it. Teach it and obey it. And we need to make certain that, as we talked about last Sunday morning, as we continue to restore the New Testament church, that we go back to these, yes, basic things, but vital things. To make certain that we do all things the way God would have them to be done. What exactly do deacons do? They help us to do just that. Because they are serving us as we seek to grow together and grow in the grace and wisdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They help us in so many areas. And aren't we thankful for the men we have currently? And I hope you're continuing to pray for those who will be considered in the future. I know that the Bible says specifically the first qualification of an elder is that he must desire the office. But if I may just for a moment... To our younger men especially. Desire to be a deacon one day. Desire the office of an elder in the future for sure. But desire to be a deacon. The church needs good deacons. Men who serve. Men who help. Men who help us. And men who do things so often unknown and behind the scenes. And whose names aren't often in lights but who are doing things that help the church move forward moment by moment, maybe slowly, but day after day. That's, that's God's plan. I'll just tell you, as a preacher, 
a lesson like this when it's hard to transition to what we typically call the imitation. But John's going to lead us in a song in just a moment. If you're using your book, you can go ahead and get your book out. And most of us will be using the PowerPoint. But may I just make the transition this way? If we are trying to restore all that God says about the church, yes, we must make sure we restore the organization of the church. But we must also never move off of God's plan for salvation. And that plan is very simple. Jesus said that we must believe and be baptized in order to be saved. Jesus himself said that unless you repent, you'll perish. Luke 13, verse 3 and 5. Jesus himself says, the one who confesses me before men, him will I also confess before my Father who is in heaven. Have you heard? Have you repented? Have you confessed? Have you been baptized for the remission of your sins? We got to see that last week. Wouldn't it be wonderful to see it again this week with even another? Or maybe this morning as a Christian, you're simply not living in such a way that reflects that confession you made weeks or months or years or even decades ago. That Jesus really is your Lord and your Savior. And you're not living in such a way that reflects that you are a saved person. One who has Christ as the Lord of his or her life. And this morning you need forgiveness or you need encouragement. The Bible simply tells us to pray for forgiveness once we are a Christian. And if we're penitent, that forgiveness will be granted. And we'd love nothing more than to pray with you. Or ask for encouragement on your behalf. If either is your need to become a Christian or to be restored, we invite you to come or we stand and sing to encourage you.